In our explorations of various industries here on the AI and Industry Podcast, we've heard of all kinds of challenges with data. Data being tied up in silos, data being not labeled and not organized or not organized in, in a kind of singular way that, that actually makes it make sense. But rarely have we complained about data being disjointed because it was just blown up by a grenade. That actually is the case uh, for some of the information that the military needs to extract in the field. Uh, and this week, we're going to be talking about the defense sector. We interview Ryan Welch, who's the CEO of a company called Kindy, who's working on explainable AI. They're based in San Mateo, but they do a good deal of work in the defense industry. And this week, we focus on specifically the dynamics, the unique data challenges, let's say, of the defense industry, as well as the general use cases of AI and defense uh, writ large. So there's two major takeaways, I think, for this particular interview, one of which is that many of the admittedly extreme challenges that the defense sector has to deal with, with making sense of unlabeled data, really do transfer to other spaces and sectors. People that deal with extremely disjointed text information, which is sometimes called dark data. Uh, and information in various languages or different dialects will be able to resonate with some of the unique challenges talked about in this episode and maybe even gain some insights for how to handle them. In addition to that, I think it's always useful to get a sense of how different sectors are changing. If you are an executive, you're a manager, knowing where, let's say, the healthcare field or knowing where the retail field is starting to change and bend and adjust in terms of new capabilities for AI, new strategies being used by companies, I think this is all part of the opening of the eyes that make these interviews worthwhile. And rarely have we sort of gone deep in defense specifically. And I think some of the insights there, again, will kind of provide the same kind of rounded perspective on the capability space of AI, which we really like to be kind of the ROI of the show itself. So I certainly hope you get a lot out of this episode. We uh, conducted this interview live at a WeWork right in San Francisco. I was over there to speak at the TransTech conference uh, this past week. And right after my interview at Salesforce, um, one of the folks that works with Ryan was kind enough to book us a room and we work and we got to hang out, sip some coffee, shoot the breeze and get in a fun interview. So certainly hope you like this one. This is diving deep into the defense sector. I'm Dan Fagella. You're listening to AI and Industry. And this is Ryan Welch with Kindy. Let's dive in. So, Ryan, yeah, where we'll kick things off is talk about the unique challenges of applying and maybe even adopting AI in the defense world. I think a lot of our crowd is in the enterprise. Uh, they have an idea of maybe what some of those struggles are. What's unique about defense in terms of considerations for bringing AI? I would say the most challenging things in, in defense is the data that you're working on. It is often extremely dirty data, um, fragments of, of text. Uh, unfortunately, the, the people that you're getting it from don't label it for you before you get it from them. <laughs> so that's also uh, a challenge. So I, I think I think the biggest thing in, in defense is is the actual data that you're doing the, the operations on. And of course, when you're applying AI and machine learning techniques, it, it really does come down to uh, you know, do you have the labeled data? Is the data clean? Ultimately, that's going to result in the the value of the system that you're using. So biggest challenge is is the dirtiness of the data. Is that in part just because defense encompasses so many things? You know, people think like, oh, pharma, okay, well, we need to have like our life sciences information about proteins and we need to have uh, some sort of records of how our clinical trials went. In defense, it's sort of what isn't maybe part of defense. I mean, you got boats, you got airplanes. So is it, is it just a factor of how broad the concept is or is it a factor of maybe 
you know, how how old and stodgy the systems are and how siloed everything's stored. I mean, what's the function? What makes data extra challenging? Yeah, mainly the, where, where they get it from. So, so I mean, oftentimes you'll do a, a collection on the, the battlefield. So, for example, if you take a town, um, you're going to collect hard drives, collect receipts, collect all this stuff out, out in, the, in the field, and you're going to want to do analytics on that. You want to give it to analysts and see what folks are, are doing. I mean, this isn't anything new. They've done it in military throughout throughout history. It's collecting uh, information from other military combatants. So when you collect those snippets, they may be all torn up because you threw a grenade in there. Yeah, <laughs> you got to okay. piece together all that information. So so now it's so now it's very, very dirty data versus very clean data that you wrote internally by college graduates. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so well, that's probably the first time grenades have been mentioned on the podcast, so congratulations to our listeners. Um, you're, the, you're the first to hear that word. But So it's, it's not only that it's varied data, but it's that this is being acquired in a really rough way in the first place. Again, we're not orchestrating it. We're ripping it out of the world in whatever gruesome format it's in. So it could be in you know, in Arabic, stored somewhere in some bunker, and now we have to figure out, is there, is there a plan in here that has to do with attacking these two forts where we think that there might be some, you know, preemptive strikes coming up or something like That's that? That's right, you have, to get, you have to get intelligence out of, out of that data. So yeah. it, it, does, it does become, become very da- dirty data. Um, Damn, this hard. Snippets. One sentence, and then you miss a few sentences, then you have another sentence. Yeah, that's... That's certainly challenging. I can imagine what has to happen in that world, and, and you know, you know better than I, is that we'd have to have some kind of discrete use cases where we'd say, look, we could go in a million directions here, but generally if we're going to solve this problem, we need at least this much of this stuff, even if it's ugly, and, and we need to be able to process and extract these kinds of things out of it. Because it, it seems like it's such a broad problem if every time you're doing um, this kind of intelligence gathering it's from new formats and in a totally different method. It seems like if we're going to train an AI system, we'd at least have to, even if, even if the world's data isn't structured, we at least have to have a structured way of making that use case happen consistently. Yeah, I think the best way to handle it is to, is to go down to the character level within words. So actually get down to the characters, like get down to the, the letters within words. Because a lot of times when, when you build these kind of, uh, if you're building a knowledge graph type, network where you're doing some reasoning over it and, and things like that. You may um, just be chunking words, um, but you actually need to go down a, a level of granularity down to the individual characters um, and start to draw connections between all the different um, characters to words, words to sentences, sentences to other sentences, sentences to paragraphs, you, paragraphs to... You have languages to deal with too. That's right. And specifically local dialects is, as well. And, and that really becomes a, a challenge. Like if you take a an NLP parser from, say, um, Stanford NLP for, for Arabic, um, that's going to be trained on your uh, standard standard Arabic versus local dialect. So it'll it'll fall over. Yeah, man, that's yeah. Those are those are exceedingly real deal challenges. So you you have to start. I mean, you know, you're not given nice pieces. You have to pick up grains yes. and then see if you can coax forth where you know we got however many hard drives here. Which of these files is even worth reading? Because we don't have um, forty thousand hours to dedicate to reading these things. So, can we just from the grain say, look, well, you know, uh, in, in this set of folders, if we're going to find anything, it's probably here. Yeah. You know, at least start with that. Yeah, and, and you have to do it in the field. 
So the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, one of the big, big theses behind why uh, AI is working today is the amount of data that you have and the amount of computational resources. Well, how many computation, how much computational resources can you put out at the edge? (laughs) So you now need efficient algorithms that work on limited resources out in the field on dirty data. Um, So these are all the types of challenges that come with using AI and other machine learning techniques in defense. Yeah, we talk about, you know, I've definitely mentioned on the podcast and other longtime listeners will have heard it, the, the challenges of e-commerce retail versus physical retail, where in e-commerce, I look at what you click and what you added to cart and remove from cart. I see your payment history. I have this awesome digital record of everything because you exist in my virtual world. Mm. In physical retail, I need a camera to like know that's you, but that's illegal, <laughs> right? And then and then I need to I need to guesstimate whether someone stopping at this point in the aisle means that they actually care about this product versus that product. And things are harder to rip out of the real world. But th- even that is an environment that I built yeah. as a store owner, right? And I can instrument it with my own sensors. We're talking about a different scenario. So, so yeah, it sounds like just, you know, the food of AI, the, the data itself, this is, you know, what you guys, it sounds like, see as kind of the pivotal challenge. In that, that, is, that is the hardest challenge in, in that space is the type of data that, that you're working on. And then if, if you even have the, the computational resources, say you can send it back to a data center to do the, do the processing, then that's great. But oftentimes that takes an extended, extended amount of time. And by the time you get the results back, intelligence is old. Yeah. yeah so you got to do everything out at the edge. You got to do it on, on dirty data and you got to move really, really quick. So, so these are the challenges that you see in government. Yeah. So, so the, the ways around this, it sounds like. I mean, you have to define your use cases and understand what is potentially viable with gritty, ugly information and, right. and just have enough experience pushing that through. And I know here in San Francisco, people have a hard time finding data scientists. I imagine Af- Afghanistan, it's, you know, all the harder. But I, I imagine these tools actually have to be accessible because I can't imagine a guy, you know, who just took an AK off his back sitting down and engineering features, you know, that's tough too. So things have to be kind of accessible out there. Yeah. Well, you guys have your work cut out for you in that respect. I'll get into our next question here, but I think that that's a useful tee up because I think, again, we've talked about retail, but that is absolutely nothing compared to grenades. Uh, different level here. So the next the next question is is around sort of who in defense cares? I, just from my perspective, I was just talking off mic, now I'm seeing kind of the UN security folks calling in people to talk about AI outside the context of just lethal autonomous weapons. And I think that's what most people think of. You know, some people who were tuned in who are familiar with the beginnings of AI, they know that, you know, DARPA has funded a ton of AI and neuro stuff throughout the last, whatever, 40 years or probably longer. Who cares about this? Is it the wacky innovation arms or are there other elements of defense that are starting to wake up and say, can we use this? You know, who, who actually cares? Yeah, here's, here's what I think most people miss about about defense and intelligence is that they bundle it in the government sector and they think it's red tape, slow bureaucracy. Um, and it's really with Boeing and with... Uh, candidly, the, the the folks in defense and intelligence are extremely discerning analytic customers. They've been doing it for forever. Uh, that is their job to get intelligence out of, of data. So who is interested in AI in the defense sector? every department and they have been for a very long time and if you go back to you talk to anyone in signal intelligence they'll tell you they've been using deep learning uh, i'll actually say back propagation dating all the way back to rumble hart and Hinton's paper in 86. 
So this isn't anything new to them. And they've always had the data and they've always had the computational resources to make these techniques effective. So they're very discerning customers. Yeah, well, I'm familiar with like the Project Maven and all this stuff mm -hmm. and these kind of early precedents of attempts at things that today are like, oh, yeah, we're just starting to do that, like machine vision and whatnot. Um, so it sounds like there is a general awareness of this. It, it seems like the cutting edge of AI, I look into the enterprise world where I think there are reasonably smart and fast moving execs. There's some sectors that are slower than others, but I look at, you know, maybe media and I look at e-commerce and, and I look at some retail and I look at some finance and, and I say, okay, some of these guys are pretty smart, these executives leading the show, but even for them grasping the capabilities and the use cases of AI and having some idea of where it plugs into their functional needs is st still rare. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, defense folks have a history and kind of a way, and they have been admittedly tinkering with the tech since before most people knew yeah. about it. You know, are they, are they starting to see a more rounded set of use cases? Because again, I look at some of the smartest spaces and I say, even they don't feel like they've got it. That's the, biggest, that's the biggest hurdle facing B2B AI companies right now is, is executives do not know the use cases and the ROI for these technologies right now. Um, and I think that's the biggest, or startups and other companies have a lot of work to do in providing that information to, to users. We need to start thinking about AI as a, as a feature, not the product, right? Whereas a lot of uh, folks think about it as the product. Um, it's just a feature of a product yep, that yep. delivers value to a, to a customer. So we need to change our way of thinking and stop saying, I'm selling you artificial intelligence and rather say, I'm, I'm selling you a solution to your problem. Yep. And there's literally just at Salesforce and, you know, the same point was emphasized in the C-suite. And, and we see so many companies and we know that the words around AI, they're getting Google traffic, right? The people are searching for this stuff. You can get a middle manager to download a white paper, but you're not going to really hook someone who spends the, who cuts the big checks with just the buzzwords. Right. So like it'll... It'll bumble you where you need it needs to bumble you. You have to go straight into that use case conversation. And it sounds like even in defense, like they're, they're just having to get a sense of what's even possible and which of these are viable. So they're, they're, they're not intimidated by the words AI, but it sounds like, you know, in this space too, they're maybe figuring out what's even really out there and what has a chance of working. Yeah. So take something as simple as enterprise search. Uh, you know, you have a, a Elastic uh, going mm -hmm. public here here recently, and a lot of folks are using Elasticsearch, yep. and it's a phenomenal search engine for terms. <laughs> and then you take an AI-based search like what you see being published on the Stanford question answering data set, and no one would confuse Elastic, you know, term-based search with these kind of advanced question answering systems. I think... I think we need to kind of move something as simple as that and saying, hey, I now have AI within my enterprise search capability. I can now get you better information much faster than you could with a term-based search. And something as simple as that, you can, you can go into any executive and say, I have an enterprise search capability for you. There's AI as a part of this. And because of, of that, um, your people are going to save two hours every day. Yeah, that's <laughs> the title of KPI right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and it's it's something so so simple that that I feel like with AI, people kind of go towards this kind of big bigger picture, automating away you know giant groups of people, as opposed to hey, no, just make enterprise search better and save an hour of everyone's day. Yeah, tie it to a value <laughs> prop like regular companies yeah. do, like something people could care about. That's right. Um, so, question related to this before we get into the last question, when we talk about innovation, it sounds like 
the keywords and the buzzwords of AI, I mean, this stuff is, is kind of old hat in many of the departments of, of defense in, in at least the U.S., I would presume, where we're, you know, got a lot of money for that stuff yeah. around here. And but, but still, exploring the use cases is tough. They're having the same challenges as other people are. In terms of the cutting edge innovation, do we expect like the real bleeding edge adoption of whether it's search, vision, sensors, whatever, to be happening sort of within the, the DOD in some sense or within defense kind of in the, the, the public sense? Or do we expect the, the Boeings and the big defense contractors of the world um, to, to really be the ones that are probably the guinea pigs on what's really on, the, on, the, on that bleeding edge? Are they the ones getting the orders to, to build the thing and, and be the ones to test what's wacky and straight out of Carnegie Mellon, straight out of Stanford and seeing if it can work in the field? Yeah, so it makes it both. I don't want to make you pick one of the other. No, yeah, I, I think I think uh, that's that's a great question. So, so from my experience, the the larger SIs are really good at taking techniques that have been proven to work on a class of problems and then doing them at scale. And companies like like mine kind of push the limits of what's possible with with AI. And there are groups within the defense uh, industry that are willing to work directly with us to test things out, then it either we scale. So take a company like, like Palantir, they were able to scale with the size of the contracts yep, that they were yep, getting. Yep. Someone like, like us, we're still figuring that out. Do we have a completion partner that we work with, like a larger SI, or do we bring on or build out rather that services component like, like Palantir did? Yeah. Okay. So these are vendor considerations in defense. It sounds yeah. like these are waters to navigate. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm hearing you correctly, we we might expect maybe a, a bit of both. So clearly, a lot of the, the very bleeding edge actually is going to bubble up from the ecosystem outside of I don't know what was it Martin whatever. Why am I? Why is it not ringing a bell? Their logo has a big arrow on it. Like, oh, yeah, lock, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I've driven past the building when I lived out here like a million times. And like I was, I was like, well, why can't I? Um, yeah, those those folks, you know, clearly they're going to be building some cutting edge stuff. But obviously a lot is going to bubble up from smaller firms, firms that have a really targeted nailed thing that they're going to try to bust open the tech. Like, like obviously you guys and everybody else kind of coming into this game. It sounds like it's still to be figured out in some sense. Does that all have to loop in through the big established players that have these gargantuan contracts, or does this tie straight into the government itself? The, the, like the, no, the, the one thing that the government has has done really well, and, and I would say probably since since Palantir, uh, so I guess Palantir was founded about two thousand five, the government has done a phenomenal job of now engaging directly with startups, um, whereas before it was, hey, if you're a startup. You know, you got to go work through yeah. the big, okay. the big so SI, and they've, they've yeah. done a, a phenomenal job. And to meet directly with people in Silicon Valley, I mean, every time I meet someone in in DC and say, you know, at some conference or anything, typically they'll say, "I'll be in um, so Silicon Valley yeah. within the next thirty days, so we yeah. should meet at your office." Yeah, um, they've done. I think the government's done a phenomenal job well, since two thousand five. They've got like these. These arms for this too, right? The yeah. DIU, which it used to be DIUX, is, yeah. is out here, and they got one in Austin, I think one in Boston, and and so yeah, I I heard that at National Defense University that that there's this attempt to basically to keep up with the times. I think right. they realize that it's not going to be something you want to wait to trickle. Like we have to jump because the other countries are jumping, 
So there, it sounds like there actually is an interface between the startup world and government, maybe better than ever. Yeah, they, well, they've, they've adopted, uh, or adapted rather, um, because if you think about the history of, of innovation, maybe prior to the 90s, all of it was coming out of large institutions, whether it's Bell Labs, DARPA, um, yeah. those kind of yeah. uh, uh, Xerox Park, like these big institutions. Then all of a sudden, they started to see diffusion across like you know, smaller startups can build phenomenal stuff because it's pretty cheap to, to write code, right? And they had to adapt to that. You know, they could no longer just talk to five organizations and get all the innovation in the United States. They now had to talk to 5,000. <laughs> and um, I think that was a, a bit of a challenge from them, probably from, you know, mid 80s, uh, early 90s, all the way up until 2005. But then they've recognized that and have changed really quickly from, from 2005 to, to today. Oh, that probably bodes well for firms like yours and the other people that want to kind of crisscross into that space a little bit. Absolutely. Last question, and, and we'll uh, wrap this as quickly as you need to. You know, when you when you look forward in the world of defense, there's, man, there's so many different areas of application. You know, I think one thing we like to ask as a final question is, we look, you know, a decade ahead, what is happening now that will... Uh, a decade from now, have AI just baked into it as the norm? Like right now, it's it's totally not, but AI will be a part of the ballgame. We almost won't even think about it anymore. Are there kind of sweet spots where it really seems like based on the interest, based on the accessibility of it, are really going to, we might estimate to be lower hanging fruit than other things in terms of um, AI norms in the future? Yeah, everything that's built on top of your classic enterprise data, your classic structured enterprise data, all of it will have machine learning in it. Take every application of the last 25 years at ML. <laughs> now you got predictive capabilities, uh, right? I mean, th that's effectively what is what is going on. But but really, what's going to significantly move the needle and totally transform everything is AI on the unstructured data, on the text data, on the human communications. That's a really tough nut to crack. Um, well, it's the whole intelligence game, right? So. Some folks are, are starting to address that, like like us, focusing on unstructured text data. And that is going to, I think, fundamentally transform everything. So I think there's there's three legs to the stool for, for enterprises. You have your classic structured data. You have your machine-generated data. So you're like IoT platforms and, and other things. Then you have this unstructured text data. And they're the kind of three legs to the stool. And we've solved the analytics for storage and analytics of... Uh, your IoT data and your structured data, we still haven't solved the storage and ultimately analytics on the unstructured text data. And that's really because machines don't understand language very well. Yeah, not yet anyway. Well, yet, yeah. Fingers crossed yeah. for you guys. Yeah. And I, I certainly think that for the folks tuned in, I think that the zeitgeist of an intelligent layer on top of these enterprise systems is an appealing one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll tune in to see what happens next. But that's all we have for time, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, 
and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.